The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Mara Cunningham, and I'm a program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today for this NCUSCR China podcast are two historians of modern China, Jeremy Brown and Matthew Johnson. Both received their doctorates from the renowned Chinese history program at the University of California, San Diego. And today, Jeremy teaches at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, and Matt is on the faculty of Grinnell College. Together, they've edited an important new work entitled Maoism at the Grassroots, Everyday Life in China's Era of High Socialism, which was recently published by Harvard University Press. Jeremy and Matt, welcome to the NCUSCR China podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Warren. Um, so Maoism at the Grassroots is a collection of articles by historians from North America, um, PRC, Taiwan, Europe, all of them looking at day-to-day experience of life under Maoism. So unfortunately, we don't have enough time to go through each one of the 13 separate chapters in the book, um, although I, I would love to. But why don't you each pick out just one or two of the chapters and very briefly tell our listeners what they're about? I better start with the first chapter. I mean, you should. I'm, I'm yeah. stoked and ready to talk about Yang Kui Song's Great. chapter. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and we made it the first chapter for a reason because mm-hmm. it's a mind blowing look at this factory worker who's labeled as a bad element uh, in the 1970s. He gets in trouble and his factory has been moved from Shanghai to Hunan. Uh, he starts getting investigated through pretty early on, actually, for p- his political history, but he really gets in big trouble in 1970 with the one strike three anti movement and that's when it comes to light that he's having a lot of affairs with his male factory workers so Mm -hmm. he's gay Uh, he's having a lot of affairs and the factory is not happy with this it's not allowed this is bad element behavior so he's labeled as a bad element and uh other than that he's not really punished he's allowed to stay in the factory through to be reformed through labor Mm -hmm. uh but yeah it doesn't work he doesn't get reformed uh he keeps having affairs and so uh, he's finally sentenced to a long prison sentence. I think it's a seven-year prison sentence that he's sentenced to in 1977, this factory worker. Uh, and then we don't know what happens after that. Yang Kui-sung got this bag of files through the underground, through this grassroots network of sources, and the file ends there with his sentence in 1977. Hopefully he didn't have to serve his entire term. Uh, but it's a, yeah, it's a great chapter. It's a great chapter because it tells us that China, under Mao, was repressive. Uh, and people were punished for things that seem really unfair to be repun- punished. But it also shows us that uh, he didn't he, he he wasn't scared enough to stop having his affairs, right? So it wasn't repressive enough to actually get this guy's behavior into line with what his factory or Mao wanted him to do. So human nature meets up with this repressive system, and human nature kind of holds its own. Is the message I take uh, from the chapter. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Um, Good yeah. Uh, so, I mean, a, a couple of others uh, that I think would probably uh, get people's attention, certainly. Um, I mean, obviously, we think they were all wonderful chapters, but uh, a chapter by uh, Wang Xiaoxuan uh, on local religion in Zhejiang province during the Mao years, I think will um, strike people as covering new territory, because basically what that chapter says is that 
um, local religion did exist uh, in China uh, through the 50s into the 1960s, that moments where the state kind of crashed and burned, like after the Great Leap Forward, uh, created um, not inconsiderable space in which uh, local religion could sort of reemerge and thrive, and that local officials uh, played a very important role, actually, um, through a range of strategies, either uh, by sort of dragging their feet in terms of responding to central commands, um, or uh, actually sheltering, uh, even participating in uh, religions themselves in, in, in perpetuating the survival of uh, local religion. And so that, I think, is a completely new perspective on religion during the Mao years, um, one that hasn't really been available before. And then another chapter uh, by Professor uh, Wang Haiguang, uh, who was formerly at, at the uh, Central uh, Party School, uh, covers uh, violence in Guizhou province, uh, looks at how uh, Miao people responded to state taxation and collectivization um, with uh, a sort of interesting and uh, perhaps even for students of China's Republican history, not unfamiliar uh, combination of millenarian religion and organized uh, violence via the formation of militias. Uh, to sort of push back against the state. And so the, the, the steps and, and strategies that the state had to adopt in order to deal with this trouble uh, in a very sort of geopolitically sensitive part of China um, really tells us a lot, I think, about uh, how violence during the Mao years wasn't just a story of the state um, inflicting violence on uh, ordinary Chinese people, which I think is often how it's depicted, but actually that, you know, kind of to tie back to Jeremy's points, um, people also push back against the state. And that's not necessarily a narrative that's been uh, really available. Yeah. So my understanding is that this book came out of a conference that the two of you put together. And I was wondering uh, if you could tell our listeners how you got the idea for the conference, sort of how you assembled participants, and then how you selected those people who wound up as contributors to the book. I could just continue uh, to talk about... Um, just the main point, which is that we wanted to, we started by wanting to cover the 1960s from the perspective of new sources, uh, and that quickly led to a workshop uh, in Vancouver. Yeah, and we got uh, we got funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada mm -hmm. to put to put on this conference in in Vancouver. Yang Kui Song came from China. We had three participants come from Europe, so it was good to get everybody together in the same room with pre-circulated papers, everybody wrote a real, like a book chapter to start, and they were due a couple weeks in advance, and everybody read everything, and then the, the presenters were limited to basically three minutes to present their work, because everybody's read it, right? So the, there's an assumption that everybody's read the material, and you, you don't have to tell us what you wrote. You can raise whatever questions you want in three minutes, and then the discussion gets much longer, right. and then there's just open discussion for the whole rest of the hour, uh, and that allowed us to make the, all the connections that we could, and sent people home with suggestions for revisions. And then Matt and I had to think about uh, what are we going to do after the conference to turn this into a book? What's missing? And what was missing was Guizhou. I mean, the periphery was of China, ethnic minority regions were missing. So we mm -hmm. added Wang Haiguang's chapter about Guizhou. We added Wu Zhe's chapter about Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. um, Cao Shuji's chapter. We, we're kind of missing rural China, so right. Cao Shuji's chapter about the rural anti-rightist movement guy came later. Yep, Wang uh, Xiaoxuan's chapter was uh, something chapter I'd heard too. presented at another conference. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like a perfect fit for the volume. Yeah. And then uh, 
the book came from there, and it was hard. It was a it was a hard long process because of the translation issue mm-hmm. of uh, yeah, turning Chinese academic articles into English language academic articles is mm-hmm. not a one for one word for word process at all. It's, no. it's the whole structure of the piece has to actually get adjusted. And so that was part of the, the time that it took to go from workshop to, to book. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's really admirable about this book is that there are so many Chinese contributors, which, you know, it sounds like that should be self-evident. Like, it's a book about Chinese history. It should include articles by Chinese scholars. But that's actually fairly rare in a lot of academic collections today. Um, so when you were when you were working with the scholars, did you find that, you know, North American and European scholars versus PRC Taiwan scholars, did were you approaching the Mao years in different ways, or are you just talking about the structure of their articles was different, and that was the the sort of big challenge in translation? Yeah, no, that's a, that's an interesting question. I think that um, the scholarship being done, particularly in the People's Republic of China, on uh, Chinese history during the Mao years. Um, is hyper empirical, I think, in part because it is by nature revisionist, and so therefore the scholars practicing it have to be uh, really, um, you know, grounded in sources so that they can defend uh, any challenges to their work uh, mm-hmm. uh, by showing how it's located within the empirical record. Um, and that I think actually that that approach, even at the workshop, really ended up pushing uh, a lot of our other participants. I think harder, perhaps, um, you know, to, to make sure that their work matched the standards of uh, Chinese colleagues on some of these issues. So that was interesting. You know, conversely, I think that uh, uh, perhaps, I mean, I don't want to draw hard and fast distinctions, but, um, you know, you could argue that some scholarship, say, in North America tends to be more focused on culture, for example, and, you know, those perspectives, what people are uh, uh, sort of received via propaganda from the state is seen as a more open-ended and interesting uh, question, um, perhaps to North American scholars, scholars in Europe, et cetera. But where everybody really came together was through the focus on experience and, um, you know, wanting to know uh, how local communities, individuals, et cetera, uh, experience this period. Right. So we were all on the same page. I mean, uh, the Chinese scholars, European scholars, North American scholars, were all on the same page because we wanted to look at what happened, what was it like. We're all interested in this was a challenging time. People faced a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of struggles. What was that like? We all were asking those similar questions. But but Chinese articles usually start mm-hmm. uh, without telling you what the argument is or you they don't actually state the argument because it's just like yeah. we have this information. We have a lot of information. Like Matt said, it's very empirical. We're going to share all this information with you. Yeah. Uh, and then you get to the end, and there might be an argument stated at the end. Uh, and for, for Yang Kui Song's chapter, it worked wonderfully because he wrote it's beautiful. It could have been a, a short story mm-hmm. uh, where the reveal of what this guy is in, getting in trouble for comes very late in the article. Several reveals. It, <laughs> there were several reveals, and it's, and it's just like, what yeah. what is going to happen next? It's this yeah. amazing read. and I mean, he... Uh, he can he can do that because he's so talented and because he feels like he doesn't have to write in an academic style. But mm-hmm. it's actually really hard to get Chinese authors to participate in an edited volume like this. I mean, it was because they knew us, because they wanted to be a part of the project. Mm-hmm. Be, didn't heard that Harvard University Press 
was going to publish it, mm-hmm. so they were happy to do that. But they actually get zero academic credit for being in this book in China in mm-hmm. their careers. They get points for Chinese academic journal articles, English language academic journal articles. Being in an edited volume is, is zero points right. uh, for them. And so that just the system of rewards and promotions and points that you get works against us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the... It seems like one of the big things that everyone in this book is writing against is the idea that the Maliers were just totally dominated by elite politics and like the, this looming presence of the party state in everyone's lives all the time. So how does approaching these years from the grassroots, as you say, change our understanding of that era? Yes, we go back and forth on this, but <laughs> I, I think that I think that one of the main contributions is that um, I mean, in a sort of obvious way, we've highlighted ways in which it is very difficult to generalize about China as a whole um, and how that's going to affect uh, writing about modern Chinese history in the future, whether it does affect writing about modern Chinese history in the future. That's definitely a question that remains to be answered. But I think that one of the key contributions is maybe to shift focus uh even though it's through the lens of state-society relations, at the same time to shift focus toward what that means in a broader sense and not just focus on, say, movements, for example, but a lot of different aspects of everyday life. And so we're not denying that the state played an important role in people's lives, and we're not denying uh, that state violence, even terror, uh, was periodically uh, a a part of people's experience Mm -hmm. of the Mao years. But at the same time, we're just trying to situate those known narratives within, again, a broader narrative that pulls in a lot of different aspects of experience. I don't know, would you say that's right? Yeah, I like the word periodic. I mean, politics periodically intrudes, uh, and when it does intrude in your everyday life, it can intrude in a major way. You can get sent to jail for having a bunch of affairs with your coworkers. You can Mm -hmm. have your class label changed, and suddenly you're a pariah in your own village. Like, when politics does intrude, Mm -hmm. it does in a major way, but it's periodic, it's episodic, uh, it's uh, not on the same timeline as the as Mao's thoughts mm-hmm. as campaigns coming from Beijing, uh, no. and so that's not the, the the first concern that people wake up with every morning during the Mao years is not cultural revolution. Let's do the cultural revolution. Right. It's not uh, it's not it's not long live Mao either. Mm-hmm. Uh, every day when you wake up, it's you know what do I got to do today? It's like everywhere else, and so that's not a revolutionary. Uh, insight into everyday life in China that everyday life existed and people <laughs> had work and they had affairs and they had family concerns and they went to movies and they, uh, none of that is revolutionary but mm-hmm. if you leave it out then mm-hmm. we're getting a very skewed picture of the Mao years right. when it becomes uh, just oppression and terror all the time then then you're missing this huge dimension of uh, the most of the time that wasn't actually the dominant uh factor in people's lives. Right. Otherwise, you're just sort of hopscotching, like, new democracy period to the anti-rightist campaign, 100 Flowers movement, and Great Leap Forward, and, like, you're just going through the high points of the different campaigns. That's exactly Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, just to add uh, to something that Jeremy said, I think also, you know, there's there's a story there for people who are focused on the politics uh, as well, which is that political systems in China, um, you know, systems of ideology, systems of... Uh, surveillance, coercion, etc., were far less systematic and unified than I think previous scholarship has tended to depict them. Again, we're not trying to argue that earlier scholars sort of missed this entirely, but nonetheless, 
uh, it just seems periodically that the field needs a corrective, um, you know, one that potentially opens new doors to uh, new whatever vistas of research uh, that that say there there needs to be a way of understanding both the way in which say Chinese society was planned and imagined by Chinese leaders and the way that these plans were actually implemented and carried out on the ground. And the difference doesn't just arise, I guess this is the point, you know, the difference doesn't just arise because, you know, people push back against the state with greater or lesser degrees of success, but it's actually because, you know, those within the government wear, you know, sort of multiple hats, sometimes as leaders of their communities, sometimes as implementers of central uh, goals and objectives, um, you know, that uh, the center itself isn't always coherent in its policies, say, toward ethnic regions, uh, et cetera. And so, you know, we just need to be cognizant. And and I think this is a lesson when, you know, for, for those of us thinking about contemporary China as well, we need to be cognizant that sort of what the state says it's going to do and what it actually does uh, are often two very different things. Again, wouldn't be a revelation to a lot of people who work on, uh, you know, China, um, but at the same time, oddly kind of absent from broader discourse, I think, about China. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of non-historians would be surprised to find out how many scholars these days are actually just buying their sources off the internet or in flea markets or things like that. So I was wondering if, yeah, Jeremy especially, if you could talk about this um, this collection of discarded official documents and um, talk a bit about your own practice of it and then some of the pluses and minuses compared to working in more formal archives. Well, yeah, I mean, the late late 90s, early 2000s was the golden era of being able to just go out to the flea markets and find piles of discarded archival documents. Mm-hmm. Offices are closing up and moving into new fancy new spaces. They don't need the files anymore, and they try to get rid of them, and they fail to get rid of them. I mean, most of the files actually are pulped, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just a tragedy for me to think about all these great files and documents that didn't make it to the flea market. Uh, but somebody somewhere along the way intercepts the documents or decides that they have value to sell, most often to amateur Chinese historians, not to mm-hmm. foreigners or not to Chinese historians working in China, mm-hmm. most often to people who live through the period and want to get their hands on something. They're collectors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're out there, and the, I was forced into it. I mean, I was sort of inspired by Michael Schoenhall, a Swedish scholar who features in our book as well. He started it, and you can see the results, that it allows this slice of grassroots life that you're not going to find in the archives because... They might not show it to with the archives. These days, they're not showing anybody much of anything. Uh, or it just uh, it's just not deemed important enough to keep. Uh, but it allows us to get a sense of personal struggles, of uh, battles between different sections of the bureaucracy. And uh, the, 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 so there's way more pros than cons in terms of using these documents uh, because the alternative of not seeing this slice of life uh, means that we just get a very bland picture of how the bureaucracy functioned ideally with a few problems mentioned at the end of every report. I mean, that's kind of what archival documents look like inside the archive. Mm-hmm. But when you get letters from people and people protesting and petitioning and fighting with each other and diaries, uh, which are actually more revealing than I thought they would be, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, then it just opens this whole world of human complexity that's fantastic. The, the, thing, the, the, the downside of it is that you can't control what you find. Um, and Michael Schoenhall is actually convinced that uh, it's, it's not random what you find. Things that were super important are not going to find their way to the to the flea market. So things that are deemed uh, this is going to have reference value in our work unit for some reason it might relate to something that we're going to do. They're not going to let out mm-hmm. things that relate to that are really really top secret are not going to get out. Uh, 
and uh, and but he's also convinced that people are interested in what we're doing and they want these documents to get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it may not be random that that set of files was at the flea market on that day. That I mean, there's uh, these amazing stories of good luck that. Those of us who do this, uh, you know, Daniel Lees as well, just, well, wow, he's working on this topic, and wow, there's these ten things right there. They just happen uh, to be there. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, I think a lot of time we get lucky, but I think that there are people inside China who are inside the Communist Party who want to know what we're going to do with it, mm-hmm. um, and that's why we're allowed to do it. I, I think uh, otherwise, I don't think we could. Yeah. Yep, those are bold claims, but I don't think they're inaccurate at all. I think there really is a sense that... Um, People want to see their experiences and just a, a more detailed picture of that era mm-hmm. uh, emerge. And they're they're writing those stories themselves, and they also want you know those stories to be known uh, to others outside of China. And so we're in the midst of a source revolution uh, in in a way, and that's really exciting. But you know we're also in the midst of a revolution in terms of learning a lot more about how people themselves experience. Mao years, not just through the lens of propaganda, not just through the lens of um, archival reports, even though they, they seem to carry a lot of truth, but, you know, through these documents like diaries, individual dossiers, um, you know, the oral histories that some of us have carried out, uh, and it just, it casts that era in a completely new light. I don't think people want to be forgotten by history. Right. So now that Maoism at the grassroots is done, what are each of you working on? Over to you, Jeremy. Okay, well... Uh, Bad question. I need, to, I need to think about I'm, it. I'm working on a couple of things simultaneously. I'm looking at the social history of accidents mm-hmm. uh, during what, what I thought was originally going to be the Mao years, but I've actually extended it to the 1980s because I don't think when you're looking at something, grassroots, social history, it doesn't make sense to stop in 76 or 77, 78. Actually, okay. the, I don't see a major difference in the way accidents are handled and dealt with between the 70s and 80s. So I'm moving it into the 80s, and I'm inspired by just reading the news about China, and you see news about big accidents, sadly, frequently, mm-hmm. and uh, there's all kinds of conflicts that emerge, and people protest, there's all kinds of cover-ups, and so I wanted to look back and, and see, uh, see about accidents during the Mao period. They did happen. Uh, they didn't get reported on very openly, but there were archival reports made, an extensive system of reporting uh, accidents, and so I got my hands on archival documents. I'm going to write sort of a thematic history, not a place-based history of accidents. Uh, and I'm doing a new history of the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989 as well, trying to put together a lot of the new uh, memoirs and sources that have come out in the past 10 years. Nobody's really looked at those and put those together to do a new synthetic history of 1989. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just to focus on the collaborative stuff, I work um, with a couple of other scholars, uh, Aminda Smith at Michigan State University and Jakob Eiferth at the University of Chicago uh, on an endeavor uh, called the the PRC History Group, and we have a website, prchistory.org, where we archive uh, unofficial histories um, written in China um, about anything from the anti-rightist movement uh, to the Cultural Revolution uh, to other topics. And so that's been a very engrossing. And um, in terms of the hits we get, uh, I think, um, impactful mm-hmm. uh, endeavor. And um, also working with other scholars who are interested in histories of propaganda, which is you know what I mainly work on myself. And so just trying to put together different pieces of that history to um, you know both talk about the Mao years and then talk about 
um, connections between the Mao years and other periods, talk about how China has been represented outside of China's borders, um, you know, by the party via uh, channels of communication, political influence. I mean, some of it sort of gets into more esoteric, if not somewhat clandestine territory, but it's all interesting stuff. And um, that's what's next for me. Great. Well, I look forward to seeing all of this. And uh, I'm afraid we're at the end of our time today, but I'd like to thank both you, both of you, Jeremy and Matt, for sharing Maoism at the grassroots with our listeners.